Father of mercy, thank you for your word that you've entrusted to us, an inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary word. And we thank you for the Spirit's ministry of inspiring these authors to breathe out the very word of God as they, as they write it and inscripturate it for us and our salvation. We pray that you would give us ears to hear as we consider this text this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Long before the Southern Baptist Convention's conservative resurgence, Bellevue Baptist Church pastor, R.G. Lee, yes, the predecessor, or one of the predecessors to Adrian Rogers, R.G. Lee was the great champion of the inerrancy of Scripture in those days. In fact, he ended up being the unprecedented president of the convention three times. But today, Lee is most remembered for being the preacher who, who preached to the world, and he was a world traveler, that it's inevitable that the judgment of God is coming on those who are unrepentant. He's best known for what many call the most famous sermon, at least in the Southern Baptist world, of the 20th century. That sermon was called Payday Someday. It was first preached in 1919 on a Wednesday night devotional. He preached that in Edgefield, South Carolina, and a deacon called him afterwards and said, listen, you need to make that into a full-blown sermon. And so R.G. Lee stayed up till 2 in the morning, the very next morning, and he enlarged that devotional, a devotional that was centered on two texts, 1 Kings chapter 21 and 2 Kings chapter 9. He would end up preaching payday someday an estimated 1,275 times all over the world in every conceivable venue from churches to football fields, baseball parks, and even before politicians. In colorful language, R.G. Lee spoke of, of God's promised judgment that fell on King Ahab. Hear these colorful words. Ahab, the vile human toad who, who squatted befoulingly on the throne of the nation, and Jezebel, the beautiful adder beside the toad. But Lee's point came in the form of a question. Did God mean what he said? Or was he playing a prank on royalty? Did payday come? Payday, someday, is written in the Constitution of God's universe. The retributive providence of God is a reality as certainly as the laws of gravitation are a reality. And to Ahab and Jezebel, payday came as certainly as night follows day because sin carries in itself the seed of its own fatal penalty. Sin carries in itself the seed of its own fatal penalty. 
And Lee's point in that sermon is that the judgments in history that we see, most specifically the judgments you see in the Bible in redemptive history, are previews, coming attractions, if you will, of, of the judgment that awaits all the unrepentant in the great day of judgment. And that's why he says we must repent of our sins. We must repent from our sins and turn to God's only provision for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as believers, the certainty of this day also means we don't have to vindicate ourselves. We don't have to play the vigilante. God is our vindicator. It is God who brings judgment. As Paul would later say in Acts 17, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man in whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the great evidence that that day is coming. And that judgment is entrusted to the Lord Jesus. Now in our text, David at this point has been deeply slighted by the wicked Nabal. He refuses to help David and his men with provisions and food as David makes his way in the wilderness being chased by Saul. And David wants revenge. He's been slighted like you and I sometimes get slighted, except uh, he had a position greater than any of us would ever have. He is the anointed future king. And he has been slighted, and he wants revenge. And here's what he does. He picks up his sword, and he calls his men to pick up their swords. He is going for revenge. But then Abigail, Nabal's wife, comes to David, and she comes with food. More importantly, she comes with promises. Now, Abigail was not as specific as the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 because she doesn't know what Paul knows. There's a, there's a progressive revelation that takes place in the Bible. Now, that progressive revelation is never in conflict with the earlier revelation. It's like an acorn to an, an oak tree. There's an organic unity between earlier revelation and progressive revelation. But the fact is, she doesn't know what Paul knows. But she does know God is going to bring judgment. God is going to bring vengeance on the wicked. So David doesn't have to play the role of vigilante. She also reminds him of his glorious future. She reminds him that God's kingdom is coming, and that kingdom will be expressed through David's reign. That kingdom will be expressed through the rule and the reign of David and his seed. And that gospel and the promise of vengeance warms and melts David's heart. And that brings us to our text in verse 32. We see a promise-grounded repentance. A promise-grounded repentance. A repentance that has been grounded by the promises that Abigail gives to David. Look with me in verse 32. And David said... To Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion 
And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Working salvation with my own hand. That is a picture of someone who plays the role of the vigilante. So someone slights you and you go back at them. You are working salvation with your own hand. It's sobering language, isn't it? For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. Now, we've talked about the word retribution. Now, what is retribution? Uh, perhaps there's no better definition that I've seen than one from J.I. Packer. Retribution, according to Packer, is the inescapable moral law of creation. God will see that each person, sooner or later, receives what he deserves. If not here, then hereafter. This is one of the basic facts of life. Sometimes it's here and hereafter, but it will come. Now, retribution is grounded by three truths, and that's why we can't play the vigilante because these, these three truths get violated when we play vigilante. First of all, only the guilty are judged in that world. There's collateral damage when we play vigilante. All right? Secondly, proportionality. The guilty will be judged in proportion to their crime, to their sin. And then equity. God is not a respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of ethnicities or sexes or demographic groups. It is equitable. Those are the three truths that ground the law of retribution. Abigail had encouraged David not to vindicate himself because she knew retribution is inescapable. You don't have to play that role. And Abigail's counsel to David, her encouragement to David, reminds us that... Wise counsel is that which turns us back to God, turns us back to the Lord. It's counsel that is grounded by the promises of God, the commands of God. And, and David's response here reveals that the best response is always to yield to the Word of God, to submit to the Word of God. And this is a case in point why the scriptures describe David as a man after God's own heart. As we're going to see more and more, David was not sinless. He was a sinner just as you and I are sinners. But what set David apart, he was quick to repent. Our initial conversion to God is an act of repentance. It's an act of repentance and faith. It's a believing repentance. It's a repentant faith. 
So you're turning from something, your sin, and you're turning to someone, God, in His Son who's made provision for your sin. That's, an, that's called conversion. All right? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby the sinner, out of a true sense of his sin or her sin, an apprehension, recognition of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ does with grief and hatred over his sin, over her sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. That's repentance unto life. That is the repentance of conversion. It's a one-time act, but the vital sign of the new birth is repentance as well. So you repent once and for all, and then the vital sign, like a baby's vital sign, reveal that baby is alive. The vital sign of the new birth for regeneration is repentance. Where there is no repentance, there is no life. It would be like saying someone's alive when they're not breathing. David was a great repenter. And we will see this is not the last time he will repent. We know the story of David. In fact, he will write two psalms that are glorious and beautiful psalms of repentance. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. In fact, you read here, David's back down to this woman he just met is stunning. He is a warrior king. He is a man. And he has been anointed as the future king of Israel. And when he hears the word of God, when he hears the gospel of God, Remember, the gospel of God comes through the line of David, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he hears the gospel of the kingdom from the lips of this woman, he, he transforms from this bloodthirsty rage to peaceful, humble gratitude. It's remarkable. That's the mark of the believer. Do we have the capacity to play the role of the vigilante? Can we be short-tempered at times? Of course. But the mark of the believer is he or she responds to the word of the gospel. That's where David is. And I want you to note how David expresses his gratitude here in this passage. Notice in verse 32, first of all, he blesses the Lord. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. He begins with worship. It is God's provision. It is God's mercy. It is God's kindness to me that he sent you to me. Abigail was just a human instrument, human agent. It was the Lord who was behind this. And he is recognizing God's providence in this. But notice the second thing he blesses. Verse 33, blessed be your discretion. Let's pray that our daughters have the discretion of Abigail. That is my highest 
prayer for my daughters. Not that they're popular, that they're in the in-group. The fact is, if your daughters have discretion, they may not be in the in-group. Not in this culture. Let's pray for our daughters to have this discretion. Blessed be your discretion. And then thirdly, blessed be you. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation. That reminds us we need each other. We desperately need each other. If Abigail does not respond and go to David in the obedience of faith, we don't even want to think about what would have happened. And we have that response. By the way, that's why it's important. You be immersed in body life. The moment you go Lone Ranger, you are subject to the kind of wickedness that David could have committed had he not been essentially rebuked by this woman. Well, then David accepts her gift and commits to respond in turn, trusting the Lord to do what the Lord wills, what the Lord does. And that brings us to the second part of this, verses 36 to 38, promise-kept judgment. We see this in verse 36. And Abigail said to Nabal, and behold, or he came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. The irony is, is the true king is in the wilderness, having been slighted. And this man, who is anything but kingly, was acting like a king in his own eyes. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Unbelievers mask their true condition by, by agents like alcohol. It may not be alcohol, it may be drugs, it may be pornography, it may be entertainment. But they mask their true condition by these things and hence lose sight of their real condition, their real plight before a holy God. He was merry, it says. And he, for he was very drunk. And in her discretion, she told him nothing at all until the morning light. She recognized there's nothing you can tell a drunk. Now, Nabal was like many in our culture today. He was oblivious to the certain wrath of God that was going to befall him. And the wrath of God is not something to be oblivious about. As noted scholar Leon Morris notes, there's over 20 words in the Hebrew Scriptures to denote the wrath of God. Synonyms that denote the wrath of God. And he adds that there's over 580 times those words are used in the Old Testament. So this is not an occasional topic. It is in pulpits, but it's not in Scripture. And yet, 
Unbelief or avoidance are the rule of the day. People either don't believe it's coming or they just kind of sweep it under the map because they don't want to have to think about the ramifications. Billy Graham used to tell the story of this well-known agnostic who would travel the country. His name was Robert Ingersoll. And he would travel the country and do lectures denying the God of the Bible, denying the Christian God, denying the gospel, denying the Word of God as the, as the Scriptures of God. And one night he was in New York. I forgot what town it was. But he was in particular on this evening speaking about this false notion of future judgment. Denying that there would be a future judgment. And there was an intoxicated man in the room. And at the time, questions and answers, his hand came up first. And he said to Ingersoll, I sure hope you're right. That's what I'm counting on. Evidently, so was Nabal. Nabal personifies the false security of unbelievers who plunge themselves into sin, having so far escaped divine judgment, but confusing forbearance and the Lord's patience for indifference. Ecclesiastes 8, a very haunting verse. Ecclesiastes 8, 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Do you get that? Because it's not executed speedily. Have you ever thought about why it's not executed speedily? God's arm has not been shortened. It's his patience. It's his long-suffering with his image bearers. But the unbeliever gets it in his mind or her mind that if, if judgment hasn't come yet, it's not going to come. And therefore they are fueled even more so to do evil. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on this text, says the fool Nabal vividly portrays the case of multitudes all around us. The curse of God's broken law hanging over them. And yet feasting as though all is well with their souls for all eternity. Now in the eyes of the world, think about it. Nabal, a very wealthy man who could throw these massive parties and act like kings, they're envied. We envy them. They're on the cover of People magazine. You see them on television. But Psalm 62 verse 9 is one of the more sobering verses to me in the Psalms. It says that those who are of high estate... Now what is someone who is of high estate? They, they're higher than you. They're wealthy... They're successful, they're famous. Those who are of high estate 
or a delusion? Psalm 62, 9. It's a delusion. It's not real. This morning I was reading Psalm 37 in the Christian Standard Version. And I love how the Christian Standard Version translates Psalm 37, 35. Listen to these words. This is David. I have seen a wicked, violent person well-rooted like a flourishing native tree. So David is, is speaking about the things he's perceived around him. This wicked, violent person well-rooted like a flourishing native tree. I wonder if he was thinking about Nabal. Because he goes on in verse 36 and says, Then I passed by and noticed he was gone. I searched for him, but he could not be found. The well-rooted, flourishing, wicked man. Those who are of high estate are a delusion. We see it in narrative form here in our text. Notice in verse 37. In the morning... When the wine had gone out of Nabal, unbelievers are dependent on horizontal, creative things for merry hearts. All right? The wine's gone now. His wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. He likely had some kind of stroke or a heart attack that sent him into a coma. Whatever the case, notice in verse 38. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. He had a heart attack, he had a stroke, but the scriptures here are careful to note that the ultimate cause of his death wasn't some kind of unfortunate medical problem. The Lord struck Nabal. God's justice is always equally sure. But in his providence and in his wisdom, his justice is not equally swift. With Nabal it was. It's not always swift. It wasn't swift with Saul. With Saul, David's going to have to endure years and years of injustice. But we see, with the contrast to Saul and Nabal, that justice does come. Sometimes it comes swiftly, sometimes it doesn't. But here's the central point. God's people aren't to take vengeance precisely because God will. Nobody gets away with anything. That's the point. The Lord is not indifferent towards evil. He's not indifferent towards wickedness. His wrath burns against sin. It's a holy wrath. It's not our wrath. Our wrath is generally volatile, capricious, inconsistent. That is, there are things that 
make us burn with anger that shouldn't. There's other things that should make us burn with evil and don't. Some things that make us burn with evil, sometimes they don't make us burn, and other times they do. Look at how we parent. Our child will say or do something, we ignore it sometimes. Other times we go off. All right? God's wrath is not like our wrath. God's wrath is holy. God's wrath is sure. God's wrath is perfect and righteous. And God's wrath is completely consistent. And God's wrath is the hope of the world, incidentally. It's the hope of the world. Retribution belongs to the Lord. And Nabal's wickedness has been repaid in God's timing. That brings us to the epilogue of this passage. Look with me in verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And so news reaches back to David, and for the second time in this chapter, he declares the Lord to be blessed. Psalm 58, verse 10, David would write, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. They, write, they, they rejoice because they know vengeance is always right. It's always just. It's always holy. Verse 11, surely there is a God who judges on the earth. And David recognized if God would do this for him now, he would continue to do this when it came to Saul. It would have been deeply encouraging to David because he knew he was not out of the woods with Saul. It was just beginning. We'll see that next week. And so he, he blesses the Lord. God, if you would do this with this Nabal, you will do this with any other slights that I might receive. Furthermore, it relieved David that he was not the one who played the role of vigilante because David knew vigilantes never bring about true retribution. Vigilantes always violate true justice because, as I said, true justice is grounded by guilt, proportionality, and equity. And no vigilante can promise all three. In short, we must learn to let the Lord fight our battles rather than take matters in our own hands. How much would that transform marriages and transform life in the workplace and even churches for that matter? If God doesn't respond right away, Saul is a case in point. That does not mean 
that justice will be compromised. And so impressed was David with Abigail during this whole process that he decided to ask Nabal's widow to become his wife. Look with me in the second part of verse 39. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Such humility. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. And her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Now, while becoming David's wife would have been a significant honor, it would also involve great sacrifice. She would leave her comfortable estate, having lived in luxury and opulence. And she would exchange that estate for caves and deserts. In fact, she would have to be endure being captured by raiders who burned Ziklag in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And yet, she consented because she saw the worth and the beauty of the Anointed One and was trusting in his future reign. She came to David knowing that as his bride, she would reign with him in the day of God's fulfillment. So she left her former life to begin a new life with God's future anointed king. Does that sound familiar? Yet having said that, the text will not allow us to idealize David. The text will not allow us to think that David is the ultimate king the one who would ultimately crush the seed of the serpent. Notice with me in verses 43 and 44 as this chapter concludes. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul, this appears to have happened earlier, had given Michael his daughter, kind of as a jab, I'm sure, to David, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who's of Galam. Ahinoam would be the mother of David's firstborn son, Amnon. But this is all we know about her. But I think this note at the end of chapter 25 is preparing us for the problems that are coming in David's family and in David's reign. Polygamy is never endorsed in Scripture. 
It's shared as a wink-wink, just for, for instance. When you see someone murdered in the Old Testament, it is rare if ever, I can't even think of a, of a, of a time that it's ed, editorialized, where moral comments are made on the murder. You just read that murder through the lens of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. The, the writer does not stop and give you an ethics lesson on murder. He assumes you are reading that murder through the lens of the Ten Commandments. The law of God, the Mosaic law, after Exodus 20, frames the rest of the Old Testament. And most of the Gospels, for that matter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, up to the time of the cross and the resurrection. All that's Old Covenant. And in the reading of a polygamous relationship or marriage, it is assumed that you are reading that through the lens of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And even earlier than that, Genesis 2.24, which tells us of God's idea for marriage, his ideal for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This speaks of one man, one wife coming together to form one family. Now, certainly, it could have been within God's prerogative and his power to make Adam to have more than one wife. After all, remember the cultural mandate was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And given the fact that sin and death would enter after fall, the fall, God could have been pragmatic and said, well... This would be much more efficient if you could have many wives. More wives, more children. That's the way to carry out the cultural mandate, but that's not what God does. He gives us his ideal in Genesis 2, 24. Unless you think that that was something that was obsolete after a while, the New Testament picks it up five times. Five times that verse is picked up concerning marriage, including Paul's magnum opus on marriage, Ephesians Chapter 5. But as we know, after the fall, Genesis 3, God's ideal of monogamy was not consistently upheld. Within six generations, barely after Adam died, we read this in Genesis 4.19. Lamech took two wives. And Moses is assuming, when you read that, that you are shocked to your core. Lamech took two wives. So while polygamy was never normative in the Old Testament, Scripture is not shy to reveal that it was a recurrent event. In addition to Lamech, I've listed them. Listen to this. There was Abraham, a polygamist. Esau, Jacob, Gideon, Elkina, we saw that in 1 Samuel, correct? Solomon, Ahab, Jehoiakim, Asher, Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoram, Joash, and here you have David. 
Now, having said all that, the Old Testament clearly commands that the, or clearly infers, implies that the practice of polygamy was a departure from God's plan. That's clear not only from the seventh commandment, it's clear not only from Genesis 2.24, which frames the rest of the Bible, but also from the sin, the disorder, the chaos, and the dysfunction that polygamy produced. For example, the Old Testament reports disruptive favoritism in the marriages of Jacob, Elkinah, and Rehoboam. Also, jealousy was a recurrent problem between the wives of Abraham, Jacob, and Elkinah. We saw Elkinah's issues in the first chapter of 1 Samuel, didn't we? In David's polygamy here, with this woman's son, Amnon, would lead to incest and murder from his progeny. Indeed, on the contrary, what you read in the Old Testament is delight yourself in the wife of your youth. That's the recurring theme throughout the scriptures. Now, it's common today for skeptics to say, oh, they, they endorse polygamy in the Old Testament. Polygamy's everywhere. Well, it's not everywhere, but it's there. But it no more endorses polygamy than it endorses murder. Because murder is also present in the Old Testament. But in none of those cases does polygamy receive any kind of moral approval. And so David's going to bring judgment on his house because he has now departed from the ideal that God has given us. He would not be an unadulterated bridegroom. And that's the point of verses 43 and 44. I believe that's why it ends that way. And it's going to be one bit of evidence, a part of a growing consensus, cumulative case, that just as there would be one greater than Saul, who is David, there would be one who would come who's greater than David. Israel and the world will need a better king than David. Yes, we're going to see great and noble things from David, but there's going to be interspersed amongst all that noble action and activity hints that he's not the ultimate king, the one who would crush the seed of the serpent. There will be one who would come who would never have to repent for being a vigilante. Never. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Why? So that we could have the status before God as ones who do not revile in return. 
so that that righteousness that he fulfilled could be credited to us. And then the one who did not revile in return was crushed on a Roman cross for those who do revile in return. He took the judgment that we deserve. And then being raised from the grave, sending the Spirit, forming a bride known as the church. He was an unadulterated bridegroom. Fully committed, not to a harem, but to one bride. And he would love us in such a way where Paul could even use his love to communicate the kind of love husbands are to have. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, his bride, and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. And remarkable this would happen. In the day foreseen by the prophets called the day of God's vengeance. But that day would come in two stages. The first stage, that vengeance would fall on one man. And now, because of his sin-bearing. He received the payday that we deserved as our substitute. And the only way for anyone to escape the sinner's future payday is through this Christ who took on himself, in his person, on the cross, all that God must judge. All that God must judge was imputed to Christ on the cross. Everything in the world that God must judge was imputed to him on the cross. So that sinners like us, through faith in this Christ, might become all that God cannot judge. And actually approves. And escape. Payday someday. And that is a word for every believer here that should temper our response to slights from the Nables of the world. And sometimes we ourselves act like Nables, don't we? But it's also a word to every unbeliever here. There is a payday someday. But it's already come in one person. If you will trust that person... The Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says no matter what you have done, what you are doing, your sins will be forgiven. You will be washed white as snow. And you will be standing before God, righteous in his sight, but only for the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to you and received by faith alone. Won't you trust him today? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David. Thank you that David gives us an example of repentance. But we thank you that we have a greater David that never had to repent. His righteousness is ours by faith. Thank you.
His payday, where he took your just justice, is ours by faith. Thank you. And I pray that gospel of our greater David would humble every believer here to respond humbly to the slights, to the sins committed against us, knowing that vengeance is yours, says the Lord, you will repay. Therefore, if our enemies hunger, we will feed them. If they thirst, we will give them a drink. And Father, I pray that if there is an unbeliever here today, I pray that they would humble themselves and trust in your only provision for sin, the Lord Jesus. We pray they would repent of their sin and trust in him and have their sins forgiven. Lord, may they feel compelled to approach me and discuss this. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we stand.